listener production. Bronnie Ware is a teacher of courage and regret-free living. Having sat as a carer by the bedsides of the terminally ill for several years, she knows the pain of dying with regret. Bronnie says there is all to be found in presence, regardless of apparent circumstances. Facing our own inevitable death is a fabulous tool for joy-filled living. In this heartfelt conversation, Bronnie and I talk about letting go of what others think of you, surrendering into the present moment and living life to its fullest potential. As you practice surrendering more and more and breaking through your limits, like allowing more and more good to come to you, it actually becomes a habit where you don't have to reach that breaking point of pain and you don't even need as much conscious courage because you just know from practice that the more you get out of the way and allow life to support you, the more it will. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Bronnie Ware is an international best-selling author of The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, Your Year for Change and Bloom. She has one daughter and currently resides in northern New South Wales, Australia. So, Bronnie, let's talk about the eight years you spent as a living carer for the terminally ill. How did you get into that line of work? Uh, I think it was just a calling. I certainly didn't plan it. I had been overseas for a while doing what a lot of Aussies do and just getting a live-in job as as a carer or a companion. And when I came back to Australia, I went back into the banking industry, which is where I'd been before doing my overseas stint. And I just realized that I didn't want to be paying rent or a mortgage. And I wanted to focus on my creative journey. So I took a job as a live-in carer, thinking that's all it was, just to avoid rent. And my first companion had been sent home from hospital ill. And then it turned out that she actually had terminal cancer. And so the family asked me, would I stay on and see her through? And the agency I was working with said they'd support me as I learnt the ropes. And so that's what happened. I I just started, I I took it on as a living care position and it led to just over eight years of, of looking after dying people in their homes. And I certainly didn't see it coming, but I had put out a very strong prayer repeatedly for a job with heart. So, oh, that's so beautiful. You know, so I got, you know, I did attract it. I guess I got myself there somehow with with some level of consciousness. Um, how long would you usually be with these people till they passed? I was doing 12-hour shifts, five five shifts a week to start with, and then as they got nearer to dying, it would go up to six week, six shifts a week because often the people would want their favourite carer there. So it was between three weeks and three months, so three to 12 weeks. And what would happen when the agency got a new client, they'd send a few carers and then the patients and the families would say, this is the person we want the, the most, and so you'd sort of become the family's most consistent carer and then um, and then in between sometimes you'd be a fill-in for other people's care work where you just look after people a few days. But the ones who I 
most connected with and for the majority of my time it was very one-on-one from 8am to 8pm five or six days a week for three to 12 weeks yeah and that's obviously you know it's such a big big job and how did you you know mentally watching someone obviously it's so beautiful being with them in that time but then obviously losing them how did you mentally cope with that Well, you know, I didn't actually have a lot of support, so Mm. I just drew on my own resources. And I always had a strong enough faith to think um, that I was there to bring as much ease into their life in their final chapter and that I just tried to find the blessing within that. And also by the time the people died, they, they were so ready to because... Uh, they they all reached a place where they just gave up the fight because they realised it was just so exhausting and not getting them anywhere. And these were people who knew that they were going to die or who'd, who'd been told they were going to die. Some were still denying it for as long as possible and working through their the process of acceptance. But once people had died, because I'd worked around the clock so much, and even at times I was doing 24-hour shifts if I was particularly close to the patient or the family was just falling apart, and then I'd just stay there. And so I was usually quite burnt out at the end of it anyway. And so when the person died, because I'd definitely come to love them, I was glad for them because I'd witnessed their their suffering and just the total lack of quality of life that, that you have at that point. And so I was relieved for them and felt really blessed and grateful that I'd known them. And and then I just, you know, I roster myself off any of availability for a couple of weeks mm. while I while I recharged before I went back and did it again. And with a lot of the people that you looked after spending, you know, as you mentioned, sometimes 24 hours with them, what would you do with them? What would you talk to them about? Well, once it was 24 hours, a lot of it was sleep. Mm. So the, the moments of clarity and um, energy for conversation were, were diminishing all the time. But throughout all the long shifts, it was whatever they wanted to speak about. I was, I just learned how to become a really great listener for them. And even when they started talking to me about regrets, which was a theme that came up again and again, it was never actually prompted from me. The only questions I then asked were to allow them further release or further expression. Uh, So the conversations were whatever they wanted to share. And sometimes it was just wanting to reminisce about really great things that had happened, Mm. but more just, I don't know if it was just the nature of our relationships or me being the listener I was, I really don't know, but it really, there, there wasn't much small talk. It was a lot about philosophy about life and, all their wisdom at that point in looking back and realising, okay, this is the end of it and wanting to share that wisdom onwards or share that learning on and and just untangle it in their own minds, I think. And then in 2009, you wrote the blog post that um, went through the five regrets of the dying. What led you to write that post? I had just finished working with dying people and I wanted to work where there was some hope. And so I managed to set up a songwriting program in a women's jail because I was a singer-songwriter as well as a palliative mm. carer at the time or trying to become one. <laughs> and uh, 
and I set up this songwriting program in a women's jail and I was at a music festival and an editor of a music magazine said, write me an article about how you got all that together and what it's like to teach songwriting to the, to the women that, that are inside. And so I did that and I, I wrote it by hand and uh, with a cup of tea beside me and he, and after I finished writing it, I just thought, why aren't I writing more? I, I love writing because I'd been songwriting, mm. you know, for years, but I just thought, why aren't I writing more? And so I thought, okay, I'll start a blog. And uh, and then I was a bit stuck on what to write and I was even, I even Googled good blog topics and wow. stuff like that. And then I was just sitting out on the veranda. I was living in the Blue Mountains by then in our west of Sydney there. And I was um, and I was just sitting out on the veranda one day looking at the bush and I and pondering, like, what am I going to write if I'm going to create inspiring content for my readers? And I just got a very clear feeling, guidance, um, write what you know. And I just thought, oh, okay. And I just got straight up and went to my desk and wrote, that article wrote the, the regrets of the dying because I'd just finished. And even though I'd learned so much from the dying people over those years, and I'd been keeping a journal just for my own, my own transformation, mm. but never knowing I, I was going to, um, that it was such a significant part of my future. And some of the people who'd had regrets had actually said to me, you know, if you ever find a way to share this wisdom onward, please do, because wow. they didn't want other people to make the same mistakes. Mm. And so because the themes had been repeated so many times, I had been incorporating them into my life. And so I just sat down and thought, well, if I'm gonna, going to write about the dying people, I've got to write about their regrets. And yeah, so I just sat down and wrote that article in, I don't know, like, straight, just unedited, just boom, 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 boom. And because it was so much a part of me by then. Yeah, and yeah. It, it absolutely went viral. And I think it just, you know, it just resonates. It's so simple, but it resonates with so many people. And the number one regret, um, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And you, can you take us through this? And and Grace, who you talk about in the book, her beautiful story, um, you know, she said, promise this dying woman you will always be true to yourself, that you will be brave enough to live the way you want to, regardless of what other people will say. Yeah, she's, in all my memories of all my patients, she is right up there with the favourites. She mm. was such a beautiful, a beautiful darling woman to me. And she had stayed in a very unhappy marriage, uh, partly because that was what was expected of her generation and partly because she didn't really know what else to do. And then her, and, and her husband, in her own words, her husband was a tyrant. And mm. then he went into a nursing home and, uh, and within three weeks, I think it was of her, of him going into the nursing home, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer lung cancer and he'd been the smoker, not her. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And so Grace's dreams weren't huge. All she really wanted to do was see a bit more of Australia. She was a really simple woman with a beautiful family. I, I still hold the family in my heart. And, yeah, she was so angry at herself and so heartbroken that her life was over because she had 
lived as expected, not how she actually wanted. And so when she actually made me make that promise to her, she was squeezing my hand so tight with such ferocity and she was crying and I was crying and she was, and she said, don't you dare witness this and then allow it you allow yourself to be in the same position. You promise me now, promise this dying lady, that you are going to find the courage to live the life you're here to live, not the life that other people are expecting of you. And, yeah, through the tears, I I promised her and I've honoured that promise ongoing. Yeah, I was going to say, have you made changes in your life? Like after hearing that, um, have you just thought, you know what, it's this is what I want to do and I'm not going to listen to what other people may say or what I, what other people think? Mm, everything about my life has been changed through, through the regrets of dying people, starting possibly with that moment mm. because I've realised that the only thing that is stopping anyone living a life true to themselves is is a lack of courage. And so I get to points uh, points in my life where I've got to make big decisions and and if they if they're subconscious decisions like you know like it affects me subconsciously as well. But if I'm at a point where I have to make a, a clear conscious decision, I always think okay, this way is easier, but it's not really honouring my heart. This way feels scary and much harder, but I know that if I don't go this other way, the harder way, not because it's harder, but because I, I've got to break through some fears and it's where my heart's calling me, I know if I don't honour that, I'm going to regret it. And I've witnessed that repeatedly, witnessed the anguish of regret, and there is no way I'm allowing myself to ever, ever have those, that experience per, like directly in my own life. So yeah, it, it it's tra- transformed me repeatedly because I know that no matter how hard it is to get through some of the resistance and some of the layers within ourselves we have to heal, nothing will be as painful as lying on the deathbed knowing that you were at a point where you had a choice and you chose the easiest option instead of the right option. Oh, it's so profound, Bronnie. I go, it's, it's, it gives me shivers. Um, the second regret is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And you write, this came from every male patient that I nurse. They miss their children's youth and their partner's com- companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners. All of the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. I mean, that is so true. And but it's also a hard one because, you know, a lot of most people, they're working to earn money for their family to just live life. So how how do we navigate that? Mm. That's right. We've all got responsibilities and and we've got people depending or a lot of us have people depending on us. And even if we don't, we still have to earn enough to survive in life. But what I found through the people who had this regret is they realised that they they wish they'd spent more time honouring other areas of their life as well. So it wasn't about not enjoying their life, uh, their work. It wasn't about not enjoying their work. It was about not leaving enough space for all of the other aspects and that's what they regretted. So in my own transformation, because I was working an obscene amount of hours and I still love 
I love my work now and I can have to stop myself sometimes from not working too hard as well. But what I have found is the more that we actually honour the other areas of our life, the more space it creates and the more shortcuts we're actually blessed with by doing that. Mm. And so something that may in the old days may have taken me just hypothetically may have taken me a hundred steps from where I am now to get to what I want to do to see a particular work dream realized. What I found is instead of just trying to master every one of those 100 steps on my own and having to work out how every single thing is going to happen, when I've been brave enough to let go a little bit and and think, oh, I can't really afford this time off work because I can't afford the loss of income it may give me, but I'm not going to have that regret, so I'm going to do it, then I find that life gives me a shortcut. It may be that I'm just in a lighter mood because I've spent time with family or I've gone for a bike ride with no agenda or done something good for myself. And I'm in a completely different state of mind when I return to the work. And then life just offers a shortcut, whether that's through an unexpected conversation with a stranger or whether it's through an idea that my busyness had blocked coming through. But all of a sudden, I don't need the 100 steps to get to where I'm going. I only need 60 steps and that keeps repeating. And so in my experience, the more courage we have to actually create small, like it doesn't have to be enormous to start with, Sarah. It can just be work out what your heart loves to do and create an extra hour in your week to honour that, something Mm. non-work related. And then as you honour that, that sort of expands more and it just overflows into your work life and into everything anyway. Yeah, that's, that is a good way of thinking about it because that one is, can be really tricky. And this one I find really, really interesting. Um, the third regret, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I, I find that really interesting. Did you just find a lot of people did not open up to their loved ones? It worked in two ways. There was that, that they didn't open up to their loved ones to the level that they wanted to, but there was also wishing they'd express their feelings in their own defence. So it came from two completely different angles Mm. and one was loving other people and one was not enough of loving themselves. And so sometimes people just hadn't, it's just the families hadn't created a deep enough communication channel so that when the dying person reached a place where they really wanted to talk some very deep stuff, I mean, this was their last chance to, to share things, the communication channel wasn't there and it was really heartbreaking for some people to realise they just didn't have the energy to almost learn a new language within, the, teach the family a new language. And it, it was absolutely heartbreaking where grown men had never told their grown sons that they loved them or um, a husband not even letting his wife know how much he appreciated her despite the fact they'd been married 50 or 60 years because he just never got to that. They just always kept it at a certain level and... Mm. 
and it was really it was it was absolutely heart-wrenching to witness it and when i offered to try and be the link between those conversations it was just for it, it worked a, a couple of times a few times but there were other families where, where the patient just said no nah, it's too late nothing i can do about it it's it's too late and then there were other patients who said I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings in the case of I wish I had said to what this family member's dumping on me, that's a load of nonsense, that's your rubbish, I'm not going to take that on because they realised later in life that that, it was, that that was the case. And how did you help navigate them when they would tell you these kind of things? Like what would you say to them? Oh, it's an individual thing. It's, you know, I would just ask questions that would allow them to really sort it out themselves Mm. just by asking the right questions, which was just an intuitive process, I guess I developed over the years or or perhaps I already had it when I went into the job. I, I really don't know. But because the conversations reached such a place of vulnerability, the people obviously felt safe in speaking with me. So I felt safe in asking questions that would take them a a step deeper. And yeah, and I think, you know, from any time we speak to, to friends or people we trust or people we feel safe with, we often work all our own stuff out. We just need the, the sounding board of someone, someone there who cares. And, uh, and I think that was probably more the role I played. And the fifth regret, I wish that I had let myself be happier. You write, this is a surprisingly common one. Many did not realise until the end that happiness is a choice. They had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits. The so-called comfort overflowed into all of their emotions as well as their physical lives. Fear of change had them pretending to others and to their selves that they were content when deep within they longed to laugh properly and have silliness in their life again. Oh. I know. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking and seeing it repeatedly even more so. It sort of came from things like where if someone had made a mistake or hadn't lived up to the family expectations, then some of the families, usually the parents, would dump some sort of judgment upon the person and say they were whatever, you know, they, they, they embarrassed the family or they didn't deserve something, um, any good to come their way, stuff like that. And so in their later, later months, in their final months, they've just realised that isn't who I am. Mm. It never was who I am. That was just someone else's belief system dumped onto me and I took it on and I've been paying a penance for my whole life as a result of that. And actually not owning the fact that they did deserve to be happy and that happiness is a choice. And some of the conversations we had around that with different patients were it's it's not that we have to be happy all day, every day. That's unrealistic. We need the contrast to appreciate the blessings and to actually know our real capabilities. We, ha- we have to have that contrast. But it's about realising that okay, we all suffer, we all are stretched, we all have to grow, but we can still find blessings within that and we can still find happy moments within the hardest times. We can still choose to focus on something happier 
than just taking on stuff that's going to hold us down all the time. Mm. And it's not it's not denial, it's actually just bringing small conscious choices in to say, okay, life's really hard right now, but I've got people who love me. If I died, someone would notice, you know, like yeah. things like that. How has your life changed since knowing all these regrets? Oh, I'm a different person <laughs> entirely, thank goodness. Oh, my gosh. Um I was pretty broken. You know, I was always a philosopher and I was always a seeker, but I had carried a lot of pain from my own childhood and young teenage years forward and my own self-worth was incredibly low. And through this, I've, you know, I, I'm a completely different person. I'm, I'm a woman, you know, a middle-aged woman now who's, and I'm a mother as well, and but someone who's, I'm completely grounded in myself and I know what works for me and I know what doesn't and I have the courage to honour that because I've also recognised how fast time goes and I'm not in denial of the fact that I'm going to die and that is something that helps all of us. If we could talk more and more about death and the fact that we're going to die, which we are, then we realise the sacredness of our time and that's what I've been blessed with. So my decisions are made all the time on just knowing that, okay, well, I'm on limited time here. If I really want to do something, well, if not now, then when? Because time just ticks over so fast. How do you view death now after being in that job for so long? Oh, I think... I think there's a, a, certainly an element of release mm. that comes with it. I, I saw people smiling just before they died with the, mm. with the, the joy of release from their body. Um, yeah, I just see it as a transition. It's it's really just just a transition because I I've had moments where where there's just been things that have happened afterwards where I know that my patients have still been with me, where my father, after he died, mm. he's still been with me. So I just see it as a transition um, and one we can't avoid. <laughs> yeah. So after you finished working um, in palliative care, what did you do? So then I went and taught songwriting in a women's jail for about a year or so and that came about through one of a friend of one of my patients and she helped me find the funding through the philanthropic sector to actually get that set up and and running and then I burnt out I just realized that I had given and given and given and it was actually through the the love I received from my students within the jail that I realized I didn't know how to receive and that I'd just only been giving. Mm. And so I burn out. I ended up sliding down into a, a very unexpected and dark pit of suicidal depression following those years. And, yeah, it was a massive, a massive time of letting go and healing and uh, and I, I cried solidly for about six months, wow. uh, even before my, my waking thought. Like the moment my body started stirring to wake up for the day, I was crying and and I hadn't even had a thought for the day. It's like, oh, my goodness. And, yeah, so I, I came through that slowly but surely. I, I embraced it and allowed nature to heal me as best I could. And, and it was as I was coming out of that, that the article of Dying Regrets took off. So it, it didn't actually go what viral. What timing. Absolutely. It was basically me just saying to life, 
I, and I remember the moment I was on a veranda. I was living by then up in on the mid north coast of New South Wales on a two thousand acre farm right beside a creek, and I was sitting uh, just looking out at the creek, and I, I just said to life. I'm really bored of being sad. I'm really bored of this time. I'm ready to get back into life, but I have to get into it in a different way. I, you know, I, I can't go back to being a singer-songwriter. I don't want to play in pubs. I don't want to push that uh, that direction that doesn't actually bring me any joy. And and so then it was honestly, Sarah. It was within a week. The blog took wow. off. Yeah. And, uh, and it had it taken off when I wrote it six, seven months earlier, I wouldn't have been ready for that level of, um, level of publicity and also the level of, um, of work attention I needed to honour the amount of interviews that came in and things like that and, and just the volume of of this viral viral article. And yes, yeah, so from that I was offered a publishing deal I was offered a, a deal with an agent to write the book, to write a book around it. And I said I could only do it if I showed how it changed my own life because not only did I feel my story needed to be told, but it's really hard for people to imagine themselves dying and when they're healthy and well. And so I was guided to write it in a way where people could actually see how to incorporate those regrets into changing their own life now, which is what I was doing. Mm. And yes, yeah, so I was um, I was signed to an American agent to write the book and to write a book around it and it was rejected by 25 publishers. And so I just decided I'd write it myself and, and publish it myself, and that's what I did. And in and then I also um, was in a, a big, entered a new relationship. We decided to have a baby. I was forty four and fell pregnant really quickly and easily, which I'm massively grateful. I never I never lose sight of that. And yeah, so then within the same 24 hours as my daughter was born, so I was a new mum at 45, never had a child before, um, I was offered a publishing deal with Hay House, who oh, were my, wow. my dream, yeah, my dream publishing house. And so it's now in 32 languages, um, over a million people have read it and there's a movie in the pipeline as well. So you don't know when you take those first steps where they're going to lead you, but if you can dare to trust them and honour them, sometimes life's got some really great surprises in store. And then... Unfortunately, you had another challenge that came your your way. You were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. How has that changed you? It's really taught me self-kindness on the most amazing levels um, in a way I don't think anything else ever could have. And I, I deeply believe that we get the lessons we're meant to get mm. to bring to truly bring us into our best self. So that arrived at the same time as my daughter in the publishing deal. And so I've never actually known the work success, parenthood or or um, disease without all of those other things. And um, it took me on a massive healing journey and to the point that you know, my two-year-old was dressing me and and stuff like that. It was it was a really horrific time, but it was almost like life saying, "Don't worry about the rest of it now. We'll look after the book. You just get on with your health." And yeah, it's taught me the importance of space more than anything. I mean, it's taught me so many amazing, fabulous things. 
but it has taught me the importance of not over-planning our life. There was a time when I couldn't over-plan it because one outing was all I could manage, mm. you know, one, a one-hour play group or something like that was all I could manage. But through a few years of that, I realised just how much happier I actually was despite the fact that I was living in really full-on horrific pain. There were pockets of joy coming through because I was allowing myself some space to breathe and not having unrealistic expectations of myself. And that has carried through. Now, I still live with rheumatoid arthritis, but I'm in such a different place. So, you know, I I rode 20 kilometres on my bike last week and I'm swimming six mornings a week. Yeah, I'm I'm doing really well. But it's it's because... I've learned to leave space. So if I get a bit forgetful and think I'm doing really well and I overfill my life, then I suffer the consequences with pain. And But the more space I leave, it's not only, um, it not only helps me manage pain and, and have vastly reduced pain, but it brings so much more magic and, mm. and unexpected blessings my way because there is the space for life to actually be heard and and for me to notice those blessings or be open to them. And that's something that living with disease has has taught me in the most fabulous way. And if I could go back and do it all again, or, you know, I'd, I'd, I hate to say it, but I'd probably do it do it the same way. And you have your beautiful new book called Bloom, which is a memoir, your second memoir, Letting mm. Go and Allowing Life life to Flow. Um, can you talk us through a bit about that book? So Bloom is a tale of courage, surrender and breaking through upper limits. And it taught me, it, it includes my journey with, with disease mm. as, well as, as well as me trying very hard to make a couple of other things in life happen before they were ready to happen. And I realised through all of this just how much our lessons are given to us from a place of love and that, like I, I said earlier just then, that we really are given the most perfect lessons for each of us individually. So as I learned to trust in the journey with disease and surrender into it, it just started bringing me blessings that could not have come any other way. And so it's to help the reader understand that we don't need to know all of the answers, that one of the greatest freedoms we can give to ourselves is to actually surrender control. And and surrendering is not giving up. Surrendering is reaching a place where you just say, I'm going to get my humanness out of the way here. I don't know what else to do. I've done absolutely everything I can to make this happen and it's not happening. I'm going to hand it over to to the greater scheme of life and trust that somehow this is going to work out. And then the more you... It takes an immense amount of, well, it takes either immense amount of courage or an immense amount of pain from trying to control it. Either one, when you reach that place where you dare to surrender, that's the turning point. That's where life actually starts saying, oh, thank goodness, she's getting out of the way now. I can get Mm. on with supporting her. And as you practice surrendering more and more, and breaking through your limits, like allowing more and more good to come to you, it actually becomes a habit where you don't have to reach that breaking point of pain. 
and you don't even need as much conscious courage because you just know from practice that the more you get out of the way and allow life to support you, the more it will in ways you usually cannot even ever imagine. Bronnie, you would have received so many letters and just communication from people from Bloom and the top five regrets of the dying. What kind of things have people reached out to you about how it's changed their lives? Oh, gosh. Um, I've had people come out, like homosexuals, come out to their family and felt the biggest freedom that they never imagined they'd have. A lot of people have quit their jobs, uh, quit jobs they didn't like and have taken a whole new direction. A lot of, I I cannot count how many people have contacted me over the years to say they've quit their jobs Um, and and are really doing really well in, in new directions. People have left unhappy relationships. Others have found the courage to enter happy relationships. A lot of family relationships have healed because people have decided to speak about death and the family dynamics before it was too late. That's been a beautiful one to to hear. They're all beautiful to hear about, but that's been uh, some of the some of those have really stayed with me. And uh, yeah, people going traveling, um, seeing their dreams realized. A lot of, and also a lot of people being kinder on themselves. Mm. And, and that, I guess for me personally, that's probably one of the greatest achievements of all in my professional life is if I can bring more kindness into the world through people learning how to give themselves kindness, then, you know, and then the ripples from that affects everyone, then I'm, I'm happy with the job I've done. Bronnie, what are you most grateful for? I'm most grateful for the role of being a mother. Um, I I was really, I, I was a very restless person. I didn't let too many people get too close. I'd left a couple of uh, marriages and just didn't see myself going down that road again where I'd, I just didn't see myself going down the parenting role road even though a part of me wanted it and then I'd given up having, um, given up the dream and then I just started having a dream of this little girl saying, hurry up, I can't wait much longer. And to be able to conceive the second month we tried, you know, it's pretty amazing at 44 to fall pregnant. Mm. And and my daughter, Eleanor, is, she's seven now, and she has just taught me so much about joy. And so that's what I'm most grateful for, that despite how hard my life has been on so many levels, that it is just so committed to joy now. And maybe I would have got there on my own, but it's so much more fun getting there with a seven-year-old. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, I'd hope that I've helped people learn courage um, yeah, I consider myself a teacher of courage. So I'd, I hope that I'd leave more courageous people on the planet. But I think in my heart, my greatest legacy that I'd love is to have brought more beauty into people's lives. Bronnie, what is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is honouring what your heart calls you to do, regardless of how you'll be perceived by other people. Bronnie Ware, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful stories and wisdom with the world. We are so unbelievably grateful. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. 
you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.